Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hello Mentor. Uh, today's episode was actually recorded via Zoom uh, because of the movement control order in Malaysia. Um, so the sound quality might change a little bit from the usual uh, episode, but the conversations are nevertheless still just as interesting. Today, we have Jen Lo with us. Jen launched Wanderlust & Co. in 2010. And today, Wanderlust & Co. Jewels have reached over 140 countries with, with a style seen on some of the world's most influential women from Jessica Elba, Bella Hadid, Chloe uh, Kardashian, and many others. Uh, inspired by their hashtag WCOGirlGang, uh, Jen's vision for Wanderlust & Co. is to continue to create with care uh, in the years to come. Uh, as a working mom with two young kids, uh, Jen is more committed than ever to sustainability and a mindful design process. Uh, she's personally really passionate about the symbolism of jewelry and how it fits into the modern woman's everyday life. Uh, and with that, let's uh, start the conversation. Hi, Jen. Hello. Hi, Derek. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining us uh, on this show. Uh, I've always excited. wanted to, yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to meet you in person. My my wife is a big fan. Like she shops at oh, Wanderlust. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Thank we you. go to your your retail stores in um, I think one of Tama and the BSC. We've definitely yep, yep. been there before. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's Bangsa uh, Village. Good, yeah. BV. Bangsa, oh, BV. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bangsa, but they're yeah. so close to each other. They're both on Jalamarov. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so good to finally meet you in person. There are lots of things I really want to ask you. Uh, so we kind of just jump right in. So before we do this podcast, we do a bit of background research on about you, to see what yep. we can learn. Uh, and one thing that I noticed that you actually studied accounting while you're in yeah. university, right? Yeah. Which is <laughs> quite interesting. I studied accounting. Yeah. But there you go. Other, Two accountants yeah, in the room. Yeah. That, you know, like, I, I, why, why did you, what's your story of how you picked accounting? Like, did you have a particular dream back then? Um, so my, the reason why I studied accounting is very straightforward. I have a Chinese Asian dad who said that I have to study accounting. That was basically it. <laughs> so the story is I actually enrolled myself into a double degree. Uh, and, uh, one part of my degree was from the business school in Monash in Australia. Right. And the other part is actually with the arts school uh, where right. I actually majored in media and communications and I minored in psychology but for the business part of it when I first got accepted I was accepted into marketing and so off I went to Australia and my dad kind of let me believe that that was in fact what I was going to graduate with but after one semester he kind of like worked it in <laughs> And yeah. said, I, uh, why don't you switch from marketing to accounting? It's a professional degree. <laughs> right? And, um, and after a bit of back and forth, I guess being a filial child, I was like, my dad obviously was supporting me. He's paying for my degree. I knew it would make him really happy. Um, and so that's honest, honestly the reason why I did accounting. And then I oh, went sounds on. Sounds like a good salesman. Like, <laughs> I know he persuasive. is. He is very persuasive, my dad. Um, and I'm the eldest child of four kids. So there's also always that 
Asian thing where it's like, hey, you have to set a good example, huh? <laughs> For your siblings, you're the elders, you know, daddy trusts you. Yeah, so you know, all that kind wow. of brainwashing. Yeah. Um, and, a bit of uh, guilt tripping. <laughs> I know. And so I knew, you know, I knew, I knew that uh, my dad would then, when I graduate, would be like, okay, and now you can work in accounting. So what I did for one of my summer breaks in my mm. second year of uni was I interned at Deloitte, the audit firm, right? Mm. Uh, the audit and accounting firm. I did a three-month internship because I wanted to, I guess, properly satisfy my own curiosity. Um, and that's kind of me in general. Like I'm the type of person who's like, uh, I don't believe so much in hearsay. I always want to find out for myself. So I enrolled myself into the internship. I got paid uh, a staggering 500 ringgit a month <laughs> nice. um, and by the end of the quarter I, I obviously realized that accounting wasn't for me um, mm. and then when I went back to Australia I quickly um, went into uh, casual they call it casual in Australia which basically means part-time role where mm. I worked in uh, retail stores and all I was doing was serve customers um, serving customers, learning the ropes of how fashion in Australia works. And the, my ex-boss at, at that time, who I, whom I was working for, actually stocked over 100 Australian independent designer brands. Mm -hmm. And from there, I got such an intimate knowledge of things like margins, selling prices, how to speak to customers, like customer sensibility, like the whole process of sales, right, in terms of like how to um, assist someone without being too hard sell. And then later on, when they run into a problem, wanting to do an exchange or a return because of, um, I guess, a more relaxed exchange and refund policy in Australia, how to try to retain that revenue figure without mm. being too pushy. So I learned a lot um, from that. Even visual merchandising, I had to clean shelves. I had to change props, you know, wipe things down. Um, and I was in that job. I ended up being in that job for uh, over two years because my degree is four years. So my third year and fourth year of uni, I, I was temping. And uh, funny stories like Boxing Day, you know, <laughs> the crazy customers who swarm in um, Christmas period. Mm. Um, and I would say that that really set me up for being a bit more gritty in life. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, my first ever proper job. It was really memorable. Yeah. Did you, did you like when you first decided to do it, was it for like just a better way to use your time or, you know, or just like a way to make some money on the side or was it very intentional where you went into fashion? Um, the thing is like, I, a bit of background. So I was actually born in Surinbad. Mm. Yeah. So I'm actually, I guess it's not a tiny town, but it's a pretty small town, right? Compared to let's say okay. KL or PG. Um, and growing up, I always loved fashion. And you hear that a lot, right? A lot of women or like younger females, they're like, I love fashion. Um, but coming from a smaller town, my only gateway or window into fashion, into the world of fashion was through magazines. And this was pre-internet when I was in uni. Um, there was I mean, the internet existed, but not the wealth and speed of information. And of course, no social media yet. Mm. Um, so I think being at uni at that time, like if you're following, I guess, and if anyone who's listening can relate, you know, your world is about this big when, when you're step, stepping out of high school into uni and then your world starts to expand when you're at university, right? And then you get your first job and you think you know it all and then your world expands again. So that was kind mm. of the headspace that I was in at that time. So I would mm. say to answer your question, like I think 
I knew I loved fashion. I knew I wanted to make more money and I knew I wanted to eat better food, buy nicer things, you know, without asking for more money from my dad. Like honestly. Yeah. And um and at that time actually I was very cheeky because there's an Australian brand called Sports Girl and I had a sub sub card, credit card for my dad and I would charge things on it and then I would tell him that Sports Girl is actually a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so Genius. what are the odds that my dad knew that Sports Girl was not a bookstore? <laughs> well, it seems like you learned some like persuasion skills from your dad too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so my dad never ever busted me, but now I have two kids of my own and my kids are only <laughs> under the age of 3 years old without right. them being teenagers. I already know my dad knew. <laughs> and just didn't bust me, right? Um <laughs> But but yeah, going back to, um, I guess, what we were talking about, um, I think it was a few things. I think being coming from a smaller town and, and loving fashion and reading about big cities like Sydney, London, New York, Paris, you know, the epicenters of fashion in the world. And then mm. um, at that time, I was studying and living in Melbourne. And I thought to myself that if I didn't try, if I waited till I graduated to get a first job, would, wouldn't that, I guess in my naive mind then, I thought, wouldn't that be just too late? I just wanted to know. So it was just all these reasons. And um, I guess I was so fresh at that time. I must have sent out 200 resumes. I think I mm -hmm. sent out 200 resumes. And my resume was short because I had one summer internship at Deloitte, you know. <laughs> um, so I guess to anyone listening, I would say like, um, you know, just try, try anything, do anything. And when you're young, when you're at that age, you can do no wrong. I think lesson number one is when I thought, oh, it's too late. Nothing is too late. You know, um, just start with what you have, start with where you are and do what you can, you know. And I know it sounds like a catchy, you know, quote you see on Pinterest, but it's actually real. It's true. Mm. It's kind of what I did when I was, I think I was only 20 or 19. I was so young. I was 20, I think. Yeah. And you were so determined. I mean, it reminds me of, um, uh, I'm probably definitely a bit older than you, but in my day when I first graduated, um, you know, the internet uh, wasn't quite there. Like if you wanted a job, you have to physically send in a CV. So yep, I think I yep. printed like a hundred CVs or something with cover Same. letters, which I signed and I had to like snail mail it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I, you know, and it, things turned out well. So, uh, I mean, well, things turned out okay. Right. So as long as people are trying, so I think it's good. Yeah. I find it really interesting. You mentioned also that you, you learned a lot from your temp job, right? Like uh, about yeah. how to run like, uh, uh, things about a fashion business and all that. And you also mentioned about how boxing day taught you a lot about grit. <laughs> Was yeah. there, uh, do you have a particular memorable story that, you know, uh, from one of these moments? Wow. Um, so first of all, actually, to, to echo on what you shared, like, definitely, I, I, I didn't just mail out resumes. At that time, I walked from store to store and I handed them out physically. I would walk into the store, ask for mm. the manager and say, do you have an opening? And then it, and sometimes they look at you like, <laughs> who's this girl? And it's, it's like, this is like, <laughs> mind you, this was like 15 years ago. 15 years mm. ago, Melbourne, Australia is different to today, right? Today, it's a mm. lot more of a melting pot. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, but that, that was a funny one. But anyway, um, going back to your question, um, I, hmm, 
I would say come again, sorry, the question. Was there like a, like a, a memorable moment for you? Like uh, when you said that um, you learned a lot from your temp job, right? So either a memorable right. moment from you working with your boss as a mentor or maybe even like uh, moments during Boxing Day that, you know, you felt like you because you, you, you used the word grit, right? Like what was that like? Like an actual story? Right. Um, there was one, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the spring racing season in Australia. No, I'm not. No? Uh, but basically... Like? So basically in Australia, there's a whole thing called uh, spring racing season, which is basically uh, the horse racing season, similar to in Hong Kong and similar Mm. to in the UK. Um, Mm. I think it must be like a Commonwealth thing. Um, Mm. And so during this season, they have things like Derby Day uh, and uh, Cup Day. um, And basically, it's even a national holiday. And women would wear like fascinators and hats and matching dresses to that. And basically, it's a reason to have a good time. Um, Mm. It's great for networking. So it's a huge event. It's a a huge corporate thing. It's also a huge fashion thing. Um, And all fashion brands would do specific collections. And it's also in the springtime. So the weather is great. And so uh, the store that I was looking for, um, they actually would stock hats only for the season. So now it sounds really foreign to us here, but it's basically a huge thing where the entire store would be filled with hats of all shapes and sizes and all these like little feathery things with nets coming down and women would go absolutely like crazy they'll bring in their dresses their shoes they'll be trying to match all the colors together and so there was this one so it's crazy it's just as busy as boxing day it's it's really quite i would say quite intense like in terms of customers coming in every moment the 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 till is ringing you know like it's packed in the store and whilst the store was really packed there was this one customer who bought this orange hat and she came back in and she was really upset really 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 upset and uh, it all had to do with the hat not matching her dress and she wanted a full refund. And so see, see the expression on your face, you're just like, ah, okay, <laughs> which is kind of my reaction at that time. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is very severe as a reaction to your hat not matching your dress. <laughs> and so she really, really, really went absolutely berserk you know, uh, because we, we refused to give her a refund. We said, I'm so sorry, we can give you a credit note and you can exchange to something else. And she went on about how she found something else that's better suits and how we were cheating her. And so it, it went quite, like it was a scene. And everyone mm. who was in the store lining up to pay or like just shopping, obviously all the attention was on her because her voice went really high up. And mm. so at one point she threw the, her, the box, it's a huge box, it's like a hat box is a big box she threw it down in the middle of the store and she stormed that and she cried outside the store oh wow so by this point i'm not i'm not making this up and, and and the reason why i can tell you the story so vividly is because it really left an impression on me and so i was really stunned because i was the first person to serve her and she started yelling at me and obviously i at that point couldn't really contain her nor did i have the skills to manage the situation. So my store manager showed up, her name's Kate. So Kate showed up and Kate in the end stood outside, comforted her and she went from crying to 
being more calm to coming back in and then apologizing to me and then accepting the credit note and then converting to buy something else and then added on a handbag to go with it and then left the store. Wow. And so this whole time <laughs> I'm observing this whole thing unfold before me and that was I think one of my earliest I guess introductions to how to turn a really horrible situation into a winning situation. And it's all to do with soft skills. It's all to do with making sure the person you're talking to knows that you're speaking to them as from human to human. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things I insist on within my brand and business at the moment um, mm. that we connect with each person in every situation as if we were really dealing with a person rather than just a number. Even if it can be really frustrating, even if at times it can come across like the customer is being unreasonable, but there's always a method to try to turn it into something good. And today, um, we're very lucky, I guess, we're turning 10 years old this year. And today, we ship, we've shipped to more than 400 countries globally. So we're based right here in Bangsar, in KL, Malaysia. But uh, only 5 to 7% of our sales on a month-to-month -month basis is Malaysian. And 60% of uh, my, my brand sales are from the U.S. Another 20% from like UK, Germany, Italy, Australia, and then the remaining 20 would be like Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, and parts of Asia. And, and so I would say that that left such an impression on me that to this day, even my CS team or communications team like Carmelia that you've dealt with, um, mm. like there's a huge emphasis on like keeping things very human and always, always trying to turn a horrible situation into something that we can live with. Even if neither of us get to win, um, at least both of us get to walk away feeling like we weren't wronged, you know? Mm, this is an amazing story. And, and like, did you ever find out like exactly what words were said by your store manager, Kate, to the person? Because I'm so impressed by that. And honestly, like, I, I think a lot of people would have just left the customer out there. Yeah. But to actually go out there and still kind of have that conversation and just not ignoring the customer seems like quite a big deal to me. I think, first of all, it's in the culture. Uh, mm. I would say that uh, anyone who's spent quite a bit of time in Australia, like I would say in Australia, there's a huge culture of uh, being a bit more confronting. Mm. And in Asian culture, especially in the Asian workplace, being confronted feels like such a heavy, difficult thing, you know? Mm. Um, and I would say in Australia, there's a huge culture of being as transparent as an, and confronting, but in a, like in a tactful way. So mm. I think that was the first thing I learned from Kate, that she was never afraid of um, the word, you know, uh, when things get difficult, there's kind of a word mm. for it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, like should, we, yeah. should we just take it hit on and like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and she wouldn't shy away from calling something out, even if, yeah, difficult conversation, sorry. Yeah, so in mm. leadership, a lot of leadership training, there's huge chapters and books being written on how to have a difficult conversation. So I would say she went out and she probably would have said to the woman like, that was a big reaction, you know, like, um, you've put us in a really difficult position. I can understand you're so frustrated, but can you kind of understand from my point of view, like, I'm not authorized to do this. So can you help me help you? She probably would have said things like that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and like, oh, can you help me understand why you're, you, you know, you, you're so, I guess, 
overwhelmed you know like is, is there something mm-hmm. else I can assist you with so, so I feel like that's probably what she would have done mm. yeah mm. that is amazing uh I want to come back to like your your um education for a bit uh back to your education as an accountant did you okay. did you find um uh, did you learn anything from your formal education uh as opposed to what you're actually doing now because uh, as I understand, obviously you studied as a degree. You did like mm. an internship for three months, but you, you know, it wasn't really your thing, right? So now when you're running a business, like how much of that does it help you? Um, so I, I also studied uh, media and communications where I learned a lot, I guess, about writing and communications. But now looking back, to be honest, um, the thing that I think my arts degree, like my communications degree taught me the most is research and application, um, which you, I'm sure you can relate, you know, even in your role running um, your business and your teams, like quite often you're running to something and you might not have the solution and it, it sounds simple, like Google it and look into it and then see what can apply and how to execute. But at its very core, that's, professional learning at its best right Mm. truly Mm. yeah Mm. um so i would say my arts degree taught me a lot about research and application and then my business degree i actually went on before i started my brand to be a merchandiser so a buyer merchandiser yeah which basically um i needed to understand a lot about costings production uh import and export you know uh consolidations like product life cycle like when something uh when a new collection comes in like for example for for wonderlust and co right now we're already starting to plan christmas i know Mm. it sounds insane but um that product life cycle from the moment you conceptualize it from design all the way to like when it goes into like a final markdown phase you know not the the 10 percent off kind but more like okay buy two get one free you know um yeah so i learned so much about about product lifecycle and consolidations and product assortment in my buyer merchandiser role. And that was kind of when the accounting side came in, I guess, the numbers side, like there's a huge amount of, I guess, cost accounting in production um, Mm. to understand. Um, And it would be something as simple as the white shirt that you've got on, right? So where is that white shirt from? Or Where is it from? Oh, oh, I, I got it from Muji. Okay, there you go, Muji. That's a great yeah. sample, for example, because Muji yeah. is a global uh, business and brand um, yeah. and they obviously have stores all around the world, right? So someone sitting in Tokyo or Japan at Muji is deciding how many of that shirt to make and if that shirt comes in five different colours and if each colour comes in four different sizes, XS, SML or SMLXL, how much to make? And then how much each piece will cost. And then overall, when you make all of that, what, how to negotiate with production and then how to organize all of this to every Muji store around the world so it can launch on the same day at the same time globally. <laughs> so like if, it's oh, wow. really, it's, yeah, so it's really crazy. Like I would say in, con, in the consumer world today, like how little we know about things like that, but how much effort fashion brands put into delivering something onto a table at the front of the entrance of Uniqlo or Moody to have it available for sale, you know? Um, mm. And that's kind of what I did for three years before I started my brand. Wow, there's, there's so many things that happen behind the scenes, right? That people just, just don't realize. 
like the amount guess, how, how complicated it is to actually yeah. launch right uh, yeah and i think people know this stuff uh only when it relates to their industry right and not so much mm. when it relates to others which is why it's great that we're having this conversation and i know you do this often with people from different industries like you spoke with a personal friend of mine annabelle and she comes from the food industry so i think it's great that you're doing something like this to share with the web audience like hey this is what goes on in real life in each industry so kind of get savvy about that before you go in and then decide it's not for you after six months you know Yeah, yes, so I think yeah, exactly. Actually, I think you put it, um, you put it quite uh, accurately. Like one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because, yeah, yeah, I realized a lot of people only see the surface. You know, so yep. some industries look sexier than other industries, yep. but they don't really understand yep. what goes on behind the scenes, right? The pain, the struggle, what's complicated, but looks really easy, but it's not easy, right? So, so no. uh, if people <laughs> understand all this, <laughs> right? Yeah, so 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 important, like like fashion, like as you said, like as a As a as, as a young kid, probably probably uh, your uh, an understanding of fashion seems so simple, you know, just mm-hmm. like you know, design nice clothes and you know sell them, you know. But yeah. it's so so much more complicated when you're trying to run it as a business, right, rather yeah. than as a hobby. Yeah, uh, no, completely. And and so I, I think it's great initiative that you get you're doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is a great segue to uh, next my next question because um you you started Wonderlust. When you were still in Melbourne, right? So, like, yeah. how how did how what's the story? What's the story there? How did it all start? So, I actually um came up with the idea after uh, I guess my all my working experiences in Australia, which started off with uh, my first job, as I shared with you, with all the independent Australian designers, and then um I worked uh. In my second job after, where I was a merchandiser for uh, a business that had seventy over stores, so I learned a lot about volume and costings. Um, and then it was at that point that I realized there was a gap in the marketplace for online uh, fashion jewelry, um, mm-hmm. and not just things that were trend based, but things that would last. For longer, um, and uh, I was very naive to be very honest. Looking back, when I first started my business, I think um, honestly, I would say in part that that naiveness has actually helped me because had I had known how much it actually takes, I might not have done it. I I, I need to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I think to be very frank, I think I was quite ignorant. Like I, I, I think I had all the things that I, I shared with you quite transparently mm. that those are all the things I knew. But mm. looking back, I think I, I knew only like 10%. And even today, <laughs> I know that I probably really only know like 60%, you know? I, 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 I laugh because I literally had the same conversation with someone else yesterday. About right, this right. very same topic about how they started the business and um and and how I started the business and 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 I can see most of the time it's not because of some courage you know or, I mean yes there was like um a certain level of courage I use that word very loosely but it's mostly from ignorance right like mostly from the the fact that um when I first started Wob I had no idea what it would take to build a company like this and literally I thought I'm just running a business on the internet. Like literally, that's how yep. I looked at it, and how a lot of people who look yep. at it, right? So, yep. so like, do you do you see? I mean, considering like how 
you know, you kind of made the jump to start it without realizing how complicated or it was, right? You see that, is there a, a certain element of luck or timing, you think, in, in, in how you kind of brought it this far? Or what was the thing that helped you bridge that gap, the fact that you didn't know it was so hard? I would say, actually, uh, so the word luck, I think it's quite controversial because some people believe in it and some people don't, mm. right? Um, I think it's industry specific. So let's just say you're in online property listings like iProperty, right? iProperty was one of the pioneers. So then getting ahead and having market share, I mean, these are all facts, right? That, that does help. But in my industry uh, and in what I do, um, I would say that it has less to do with those types of things because people always want, um, people always want variety, right? And they always want uh, newness when it comes to fashion, like to an extent, right? So I would say that uh, timing and luck wouldn't have so, so much to do with it in terms of fashion itself, unless you were going for something quite niche. Like mm. you came up with the first biodegradable, sustainable headscarf or something like that, right? And you mm. were the first. So, it, mm. but for me, I would say affordable fashion, jewelry, um, we, have, uh, we, we have a conscious craftsmanship, you know, uh, which most brands don't have. We do have that. All our factories are actually BSEI certified um, and everything's actually made from a recycled brass base before it's plated with like real gold micron um, and it's plated thicker because there's flash plating, then there's like, you know, so there's all these things that does set us apart. But in terms of like going back to like when I first started and whether it has to do the timing or luck, I would say um, the pivotal moment for me um, was when I really deep dived into digital uh, marketing in general. And I don't mean digital marketing, like bidding on keywords, but the KOL and influencer marketing ecosystem as it exists today. Mm. Um, when I first started my brand, Instagram did not exist. Mm. We just need to take a moment because <laughs> mm. anyone in fashion today or anyone in any creative industry today would find it hard to live without Instagram. That's right. um, especially for fashion and creative industry. It's like a huge thing. It's, uh, and when I first started my business, that didn't exist. So uh, at that time, people relied obviously on traditional media to discover new brands, do this discovery process. Um, and um, there were blogs, right? I don't know if we all remember like Blogspot or WordPress, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And at that time in the blogging world globally, there were a couple of bloggers that are known to be, I guess, like the it girls, right? And um, so I remember thinking, I it was clear to me from day one that I didn't want to just be a brand-based here servicing customers here or Australia, like whether it's Australia or Malaysia. I think I just, it was clear to me that it was just a brand for the digital girl everywhere. And you know, the concept of, uh, I guess, uh, inclusivity, diversity, and all these things, mm -hmm. they're current buzzwords, right? But mm -hmm. I think back then, I kind of refused to accept that just because I was starting the brand in Melbourne or I was relocating back to KL, that that there was going to be a stigma that this is lesser than an overseas brand. So mm -hmm. one of the key things I did was I immediately um, actually made the base currency that I operate the business in, in US dollars. Mm. 
because I figured out that I was paying my suppliers in China or Thailand or I had suppliers from different places. I was paying all of them in US dollars because that's kind of like the production currency. And when you go above a certain volume, that's a production currency. So then all of my accounting, all of my books on the back end, all of my sales reports, even today in my daily sales report, in my WhatsApp group chats, in GDoc, in Dropbox, every system we use, every single figure is in US dollars. Because that's how I decided that I would tweak my team's mindset. Don't tell me that XYZ brand is in New York, is in London. We work in the same currency. Wow. I, I love that. That's just, just a great uh, um, psychological uh, technique. I'm not sure if that I'm using the right word to help frame that you're a global company, right? Just yeah, but to be very frank, fun, yeah. to be very frank, from the beginning, it wasn't like I was like, this is going to be like an amazing strategy. I was just like, I'm one person, I don't yet have a finance person and I want to be able to market to a global audience. I want to be taken seriously by shoppers, not like, hey, how come everything is in ringgit or everything is, you know? So I was like, what's a global currency? Plus it will minimize all of my paperwork. And a lot of other business owners I speak to, like a lot of their uh, amazing strategies are born out of accidental discoveries of being hungry for a solution that makes things go easier. And that was kind of what happened to me. So it wasn't so like, like what I shared with you now is like a look back version. But at mm. that point when mm. I was there, I was like, oh, yeah, this will be easier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hopefully it would, it would make it more relevant, you know, let's try. And then, and then, and that was it, you know, and I was like, okay, then go on the back end, switch a couple of things out, you know, adjust all the currencies in my excel sheets done you know like um so i would say that's the first thing and the second thing which is the last thing i guess on this digital strategy that i would share is like i made uh, an excel workbook of um every single uh, editor every single writer every single stylist every single blogger in key cities around the world because i asked myself what would make something relevant and current not what would make it relevant and current would be all of these people, whether it's print media, online media, bloggers, if they knew that I existed, that this brand existed. So I've made this book of 500 contacts myself. I Googled all of it. I stalked everyone. I got everyone's email. <laughs> I, I went on condenas.com, you know, um, pulled everything out. And I don't know if you're familiar with like the editor, Eva Chen. She was the protege of Anna Wintour. She became the editor of Teen Vogue. Um, and she was also editor at Lucky. And today she's head of fashion partnerships at Instagram um, based in New York. And so, like, for example, I managed to get through to her and, like, gifted her a necklace with a note from me. I still have a screenshot of her posting it on Instagram. This was before people were paid to, like, post you know, mm. and I was just like, I just need these people to know we exist because if they thought that we were legitimate, then we would be legitimate. This was just how naive I was, you know. I was constantly just thinking about things like five to eight steps at a time and if it mm. checked out and it fit my overall strategy, then I would just start executing. Um, and I was reading this book and I recently shared it with my, t my team during our digital town hall, the concept of growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And the whole thing about growth mindset is basically small incremental changes of small calculated risks that stack up to a big change, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I've made huge mistakes over the last couple of years. Like, uh, for example, like one of my teams implemented a slightly different buying uh, method to budget. Mm 
and we overspent like nearly a hundred grand on a specific collection um in u.s dollars mind you <laughs> um and and i learned the hard way too and i'm not even gonna say oh my team screwed up because i signed off on it you know mm-hmm. um and yes yeah, so i guess what i'm trying to say is like in summary, these were the two strategies that really worked for me, but also try to make things when you're in your early days of business in small incremental changes because you want to sort of reduce, I guess, your downside. But at the same time, you want to train yourself up as a young business owner on how to fail, you know, Mm. and not Mm. be afraid of failure because Mm. after that big failure I mentioned to you where we overspent this much, I went through a phase myself to be very honest personally where I was so risk averse for at Mm. least three to four months. Um, Mm. And I I wasn't proud of the me during that time, but then Mm. I had to go through that to be able to now tell you the story, right? Mm. So small Mm. calculated risk, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I uh, 100% when trying, trying new things, when trying trying new things. Not, not with everything, yeah, not with everything, but when trying new things, yeah. Yeah, what well, one of our core values in Warb is uh, take smart risks, which is telling yep. people like you should take risks, just think it through before you take it, but you should take it, right? Yeah. Uh yep. and then what I, I like about your story earlier is like, I mean you used the word naive in like how you, you know, how when you said you gifted, you know, these people, your, your, some of your, your merchandise, your products, and, and they loved it and they posted, posted about it before this was even a thing, right? Like you said, before people were even uh, paid to do it. And, and because yeah. in your mind, you're saying that that would just make what we do like legitimate, right? right. And, and I know, I know yep. you used the word naive, but I thought that was really brilliant, right? And in a way that it kind of shows that there's something, there's this, probably there's some kind of gut feeling in you that's kind of telling you that's the thing we should do you know yeah. like was it was it was this cultivated since you're young or like how how do you have to because I, I you know we, we I, I read a bit about yourself and I think you you grew up with a bit of a, like an entrepreneurial dad that's what I was what I learned and yeah was it was it somehow brought up through your family or through your friends like how how did you you know cultivate that gut instinct um, I would say, first of all, your gut might not always be right. <laughs> um, so going back to uh, what you said, you have to take calculated risks. But I would also say that, um, wait, there's sort of two parts. So mm. in terms of gut feelings, I would say I went uh, to Oxford, I think, two years ago to do a short course on... Um, I think it was called OHPL or something where it, it was a leadership uh, course. Like, And one of the things that they taught us there is how to be coached and how to coach people. And um, one thing I took away from that whole week, the key thing I took away amongst many other things was that I was spending very little time with myself. So as leaders, and I hope that whoever's tuning in would, I guess, relate to this we spend a lot of time giving we give and we give and we give and we give our calendars are full our busy calendars our full calendars are a representation of our productivity um but i learned from my one week in oxford that i had to spend time with myself like literally i would now once a week block in in my calendar like two hour blocks um and it would just say review and actually Mm. i would have i have decided to make an appointment with myself to reflect to think and to turn down the noise. So my coach um, at Oxford said to me, do you think that a leader's job is to dial up the noise or turn down the noise? 
And when he asked me that, because of what I was going through at that moment, like it was like, you know, when your brain, something clicks, click, you know, like, and I realized, oh crap, I supposed to dial down the noise, right? But then quite often we, we hop into a meeting where like, has this been done? Has that been done? What's wrong with that? And we go blah, 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 blah. And we turn up the noise, you know, it's like, mm. if it's a snow globe, we're shaking it. Mm, right mm, mm. yeah and i still have to consciously tell myself because i do still observe sometimes i go into a meeting and i leave it and i've just turned up all the noise right um and so in terms of gut instinct i would say um make appointments with yourself to just think ask yourself specific questions spend time with yourself and once you've dialed down the noise and turned up the clarity then at that point, your gut instinct is most probably right because no one knows your business better than you and no one you hire, I know this is a controversial statement, but no one you hire, no matter how much you can pay them as an entrepreneur, as a founder, would be able to ultimately know what's right for the business when it comes to values, when it comes to specific strategy, when it comes to executional things, that's a totally different story. But when it comes to gut instinct of pivoting, if you, if we can dial down the noise, I think most founders know what the next step should be based on their gut. Mm. Um, and then in terms of like my entrepreneurial dad, um, actually my dad, um, bless him. And I'm always have this, you know, this emo feeling, you know, every time I tell this story, but my dad has an incredibly humble background. His dad was just a truck driver. Um, mm -hmm. And so my dad has five younger siblings. He's the eldest boy in the family. And um, my dad actually ended up just basically scraping past SPM, never went to uni because pretty much every weekend or he would skip a lot of school days to help his dad drive trucks. And uh, his dad, my, my grandfather, who ended up passing away when I was three, so he passed early on. Uh, his dad was obviously a small business owner. And then my dad at one point went to his dad and said, hey, I don't think we can just keep driving trucks. How are we ever going to scale? You know, like in his words, okay? Because scale is like a modern terminology. Yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> urbandictionary.com. Um, but, um, but long story short, my dad today, he has more than uh, 200 plus trucks and he has his own oil refinery. Um, and so he got to this point where he scaled up to X amount of trucks and he was carting um bitumen cutting things like from quarries for like construction and then he decided to scale up further and invest his co-invest in a quarry and then invest in his own bitumen plant and he exports now i think there's only seven bitumen um production plants in malaysia and he's one of the seven um wow. and i would say growing up with a dad like that it's it's very inspiring but it's also very hard um, it's very hard also because he was very hard on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as you can probably imagine, like, I mean, we're all in the comforts of our own home during MCO and we feel like, you know, all the things we feel. So, and we're not even kind of on the streets in poverty. So I can't even imagine like for my dad, like in his younger days, how hard it actually was like real hardship. Right. Um, so I think growing up with that, my dad was never very communicative. He's not very emotional in that sense, very traditional, it was honestly through observing him and when the 97 crisis hit, how he bounced back from that. And then when the second FC hit, how he bounced back for that. And when this MCO first started, after 10 days, I called him. I was like, hey, Diddy. I was like, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> how you survive through financial crisis, huh? And then he said, when people ask if you're okay, you just say okay. Because if I say I'm not okay and I talk about problems, I feel angry. I don't want to be angry. 
<laughs> and so my dad is very matter of fact, you know. Uh, and I think just being around that, you you can't help but but rub off on it. I would say that's kind of a bit of my childhood story and um, a bit about perspective, you know, like perspective right now when we're all feeling what we feel. Sometimes take a moment to be like, it's not so bad, you know. It could be worse. <laughs> no, I I agree hundred percent. Right, like yeah, it's, I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying not to like overthink the business too much. Um, and one of the things that I kind of tell myself as well: a lot of people are going through the same thing, right? Yeah. So if you're if you're running a business, you're going through the same thing. If you're working for a business, you might be worried you lose your job. So I, I think yeah. all around, you know, it's it's a it's a hard time. So I, I like I like the word perspective. So I think it is good for everyone. Yeah, I try to remind myself just just watch and see for now, and and I yeah. think we we can figure it out. When things start yeah. moving again, right? Yeah. And and of course, I think it's going to be a great test, right? A great test for a lot of uh, business owners because you know when I when I tell people that oh you know like the the, the good times are over, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or you know or, or used to be like a job seekers market, now it's going to be like an employers market. People are a bit surprised. Was it ever a job seekers market? And I said no, it was actually. It right? was. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think a lot of people took it for granted a little bit. So so this. Think this entire thing will just be like a big reset, and and then yeah. people will have to kind of figure out and see reality for what it is, right? So hopefully, hopefully we'll pull through. Um, I want to ask you a question about being a leader because you you talked mm. about your dad and and you talked a bit about what you learned right from your past about like toning down the noise and all that. Uh, there was the quote that we read um a couple of years ago, and and I'm going to read this quote out loud from one of your interviews. Uh, you said, uh, you said. I love oh, no. being a. <laughs> I love being a woman, a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. As busy as it can uh, sometimes be, these experiences have helped me become a more compassionate leader. And and mm. I and I'm I'm very interested on that word kind of compassionate leader because mm. it's not easy. Number one, like you know how how my first question would well, how do you define what is a compassionate leader, uh, mm. and and. And the actual full question I want to ask was like, how do you balance right being a compassionate leader uh, and the business goals of the company, right? Because because I, mm. I think sometimes it doesn't always align. It's not easy mm-hmm. to get this aligned, right? Because if you ask me, you know, if I'm looking at the business in a very cold kind of way, like yeah. you know, employees are just a number, you yeah. know, everything is just a number, and mm. you know, you can make a decision like that, but then there are also problems that come with making decisions in that way. So I, I am also figuring out what is the right balance. So what's your opinion? Um, I would say that there's no hard, fast rule. Um, actually, I, I, I have some books here that mm. I kind of put aside. Um, Great. And, and um, there's, these, there's three here that are my favorite. So one is actually... Uh, this this isn't so related to your question, but I, I I'm sure you've heard that. Oh, everyone that's tuning in knows about how mindfulness is a huge movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a way of thinking. And uh, this is actually a monk that Oprah Winfrey has uh, interviewed quite a few times, and he talks about miracle of mindfulness. And I would say this actually set my foundational block on how to build compassion into my everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, like as I shared, like growing up seeing my dad struggle and these things like it does kind of give you a very gritty hardcore you know um but at the same time 
I think one of the things early on that my dad used to say is like to make decisions with a cold heart, but execute with a warm hand. Mm, I like that. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, this book talks about a lot about how, how you can practice mindfulness. But the other thing, um, which I love quite a bit by, I'm sure you, you probably like the HBR series, you know, the Harvard Business Review series mm. and this mm. book on emotional intelligence. I really like this. Um, and basically it talks about, uh, how social and emo- having strong social and emotional skills actually helps your professional success. Like in short, that's the summary on the back. Um, but, uh, I would say, I would say that depending on the situation and, and whether you're in a normal business period or a crisis mode, like currently for a lot of businesses, um, you would probably know which plan to kick into place, you know, mm-hmm. based on, based on uh, your overall numbers and what they're screaming at you. Um, but overall, I would have to say, uh, I came across a really interesting article by CNN about how female leaders around the world are responding to COVID versus the rest. I, you know? I read that. That was a good article. Yeah. 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 And it's controversial, isn't it? Because, I, of all people, I believe in meritocracy. I don't think you should get a job because we're trying to put more female seats around the table as much as I'm mm. female and I'm pro that. Uh, I don't believe in that. I think people should get something because they're the best person for the job. And I say person, you know, not male, not female. Um, but in terms of being compassionate, I, it's a tough one. And, and because I'm quite a... And we, we covered this early in the podcast. I'm quite a gut instinctive leader. Of course, we have SOPs and we have different metrics in, in place. We have KPIs. We have a scaling you know, system on what gr- job grading you have within the company. We have all these things in terms of HR all, all in place. But above and beyond it all, I believe that we should appeal to people. So I've had people who've had really horrible results to the point that they clearly deserve a warning letter and they should be let go. Um, and they've made some inexcusable uh, er- errors, right? Mm. But then after two or three sit-downs with them and, and really working through things, they then end up being becoming a much better performer and much, much more highly engaged than before because we were able to turn their mindset around. Therefore, mm. in a way, almost like saving themselves from themselves. Does that make sense? Yes. 100%. Yeah, so I'm sorry I don't have sort of like a hard rule on it in terms of how to be a more compassionate leader and how that doesn't sometimes sit well with numbers. I would say numbers really matter. You have to make sure someone's doing their job, but the best thing is to take the hard facts, observe things with a cold heart, right? Come up with what the next steps are, but then execute it when you're speaking to the person with a warm hand, like sharing that in a way that, if I'm sitting here and I'm talking to you, I'm looking at you, even if I'm saying the, what you don't want to hear that, you know, that it's, I'm not like excited, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. as hard for me to be delivering to you this news and that I am here with you to fix this, or I'm here to tell you how sorry I really am that I can't fix it, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think being a compassionate leader is about how you execute versus telling someone what they want to hear. Mm. that's Mm. very, very important. And 
uh, on Netflix, there's a special docu-series, uh, doc, not docu-series actually, because it's just one episode. It's only for one hour by Brene Brown. And Brene Brown famously uh, wrote this book called Clear is Kind. And so for a long time, like if I'm telling you what you want to hear from me, then you think I'm nice. Then we're on a, we've got a good rapport. Great. We're best friends. But if I'm telling you what you don't want to hear, then all of a sudden I'm the nasty person. But if we build a culture that clear is kind and by telling you clearly what it is, I'm actually being kind, then I think the world, and maybe I'm an optimist, but I think the world and workplaces can be better because all of us are flawed and -hmm. every situation can be flawed. And even when it's perfect, then boom, COVID, (laughs) right? So I think that's for me where compassion kicks in. Yeah, yeah. And and, and actually, one of the things I tell people a lot is that um, you know, being a good leader doesn't mean being a nice leader. And yep. I kind of draw that to compassion yep. as well. You know, I've heard stories of, like true stories of like people who, say for example, were not really performing and, yep. and the management team knew they were not performing, but no one kind of yep. confronted this person until the yep. day that, you know, he was fired or something like that. And, and he never knew. And, and, and my, yeah. one of my, kind of my points of view, of, of view was that, well, he should have known, right? Yep. Like someone should have, told him because that, that was the, that's the kind thing to do the right thing to do was to tell yeah. this person you need to change you know because uh, if you don't yeah. then you're going to have a problem right so, so that sometimes that, and I, I want to fix this uh, like uh, this idea that some people think that oh, to be a good leader I have to be nice I think it really needs to change I think yeah. to be a really good leader you need to look at the career of your employee and you need to think yeah. about what do they need to hear you know for them to have a good career, right? And and not be yeah. confusing it with being nice. And I think I yeah. think that that's that's a yeah a, a, a good way to look at. It. And I also you know I like what you said about you know um, executing in the with the warm hand and, and how you 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 know sometimes if an employee like let's say has made a mistake, yes, we you know we want to confront it and stuff like that. But it's good to have that conversation too, right? Like you know, like, so what's up, right? Is there yeah. an opportunity for me to kind of work things out with you or, you know, to yeah. possibly see if your mindset would change, you know, so yeah. like finding that is not easy. I mean, in theory, it sounds so easy, but you know, when you're out there, uh, one of the things, sometimes my team does get a bit frustrated with me, like in the company, when, when someone is say mm. underperforming and um, they might expect me to like kind of swing the hammer immediately, but I always kind of default to um, maybe we should like, maybe there's a reason why they're like this. Right. So, yeah. so, so, like, so I take a bit longer to make a tough decision. I do make tough decisions sometimes, yeah. but I don't default to the tough decision first. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, and I think um, what I learned and I'm still learning and it's still not perfect, but what I've learned just layering onto what you're saying is that as we know, this is probably the understatement of the year, but we're all innately different, right? we're all different. We've all had different childhoods. We all have different cultural backgrounds uh, and um, the way we think, the way we react, it's all different. So why do we expect leaders to all operate from the same space? You know, so what I, not to bring out another book, but here's another book. <laughs> yeah, sister, obviously, sister yeah. Book. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm prepared. I knew we were talking yes, about yeah, yeah, anyone prepared. watching can, can, but this book about managing yourself, right? Uh, and and actually, I'm still learning. Uh, in fact, especially during COVID, I'm sure you can relate that you know it's it's a tough time for leaders. 
Um, and we're all pivoting as we speak. Probably after this call, both of us are going to jump onto other calls to deal with other tough things yeah. until 8 yeah. p.m. Then we eat dinner for 20 minutes. Then we go back on WhatsApp, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, but um, I think it's understanding yourself as a leader. So if you feel that you couldn't live with yourself if you pulled the trigger too quickly because did you give the person a fair chance you're also there as an employee, like as a boss or as, as a manager to try to give them skills to elevate them. And if that's your perception of providing, right, for your team, then you need to see that through because that's yourself. And it's not about someone else saying to you, eh, why are you doing it this way? It's about you knowing yourself and you knowing that you offer it best when you can understand your core values, which becomes your business values, which then make, becomes like a balanced ecosystem for everyone, right? So hmm. learning to manage yourself, learning yourself, spending time with yourself, I think would be one of my key things that I hope people are taking away from this. Um, hmm. And, you know, I get asked a lot, like especially being from the fashion industry and female entrepreneurs and female founders having a bit of a moment at the moment. Um, there's a lot of like, oh, this is so inspiring. Like, oh, how do you think? Like, but, but for me, I don't like it so much personally when people are like, oh, I want to be more like that person. I'm mm. like, why don't you learn about yourself and be the best of you? Because mm. this, this person, like my husband's an entrepreneur as well and he runs a digital business as well and he runs his own fund um, and, um, and he's in investments, which is currently crap. <laughs> but, mm. um, so he's going through his own <laughs> stuff and we can, we can both relate at the end of the day, which also is another thing I think, which is great. Um, but he has a completely different style to me, so different to the point that because he has a very specific personality, like, and we have business friends or mutual friends who would sometimes really say like, oh my God, you guys are so different in how you execute, you know? And in my earlier days of business, because he's a bit more experienced than me, he's a couple years older than me, I used to try to mimic his style. Oh, mm. that works for him. So I'm going to do it this way. Or like, oh, I, I saw this. I'm going to do it this way. And guess what? Sometimes it worked, but more often than not, it, it didn't. And mm. then even when it did work, there would be a part of me that didn't feel good because it wasn't mm. really what I wanted to do. Mm. Mm. You know, I don't know if you relate to that. And mm. I, I think all managers and leaders, obviously there are certain things you do and you don't do, like respect people, value people, show appreciation, that like obviously the obvious rule books. But when it comes to certain other things, it's about managing managing yourself and finding your style. And if that's your style and it works for you, then good for you. You know, that's, it's mm. not really like doing what everyone else is doing. I don't know if that's oh, yeah. helpful. No, yeah, yeah. Like a hundred percent related. I mean, one of the things I noticed with a lot of founders was like everyone's personality is so different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when I meet, when I, I meet among my circle of friends, even when I meet like investors, you know, when I pick for funding and stuff, and I do get feedback sometimes. And sometimes some people, when they're very honest, they'll just tell me that, you know, oh, you're not like the typical kind of big selling flamboyant kind of founder, a bit more like, you know, a bit more of a softer kind of a founder, you know, not like the big Steve Even Jobs kind of personality. Yeah, Even yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> I seem so calm about stuff, you know, not the person that's driving go, 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 you know, which is, mm. which is what apparently some funds like when they, what they like to see in a founder. But, but I see there are many, many founders out there that are very successful that are, very well i use your word like very even tempered like me you know very yeah, calm yeah. you know so 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 i kind of look at that and say that well 
there is a way to succeed with different types of personalities, right? You just need to know who you are. That's 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 yeah. important. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and um so um and now we're just going down to like some micro stuff a little bit more, right? So it's, it's apart from I imagine that your day right now to be like I'm not sure if chaotic is the right word, like because there's so many things you have to figure out and change. Yeah. But you know when things were kind of more normal, like. What did you have any typical daily routines? You know, what was your typical day like? Um, when I had, well, my life now as a mom of two kids below the age of three is so different to like when I first started the business or when I even had one child, you know, two, let me tell you, two is not two. <laughs> one child is one child. Two children are like three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Why then my friends with three children say that three is kind of like three. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's just a lot more work. Two is not the same as two. So you have one and then you have another one and you think it's going to be the same as that one, right? But somehow it's not. Because <laughs> one kid is kind of like two parents to one. And then two kids is two to two. And then there's like the nuances between them. Um, so just, just, just a reality check for anyone who's tuning in that two is not the same as two. Two is more like three. But then by the time you get to three, three is like three. Yeah. That's, that's right. my daughter trying to get into my room, by the way. So right. I hope the podcast is not picking up. But I, I might really like digress. a BBC dad moment. <laughs> she came in the other day and she took the bolster off my bed and barricaded the door and built a tent. And, um, but I'm kind of the type of mom who's like embrace it. So I like to reason with her. And so what I did was I said to her, you can come in, but you have to be quiet. So she mm. started off being really crazy at the beginning. And then the last one week, I would say, especially she would come in and um, she'll come in and stand here next to me and be like, mommy, mommy, can I please play, but I'll be quiet. And then I'll be like, only if you're quiet. Yeah. Oh, Cause I subscribe nice. to being honest to her. So I, after the second week, I told her that there's a virus outside. We can't go outside. And she said to me, why? And I said, well, do you like going to the hospital? Or do you like being sick? Do you want to get injections every day? No, mommy. And I said, well, that's what's going on around the world. It's very sad. And mm. the doctors are very busy. So we need to stay at home. She said, okay, mommy. And ever since then, like there was a couple of times I had to go to my warehouse for e-commerce to ship, right? And so she'll say to me, you cannot go, mommy. There's a virus outside. You need to work <laughs> inside. You work at wow. home, mommy. <laughs> yeah and oh, she's sweet. only three. Oh, three years old that's that's a really smart kid uh i don't know if it's necessarily smart i think she's just very street smart <laughs> she i mean she's very savvy to what's going on you know uh mm. but but i wouldn't say she's smart i mean too young to tell but right right um but she yeah i i think i i would talk to her i would talk to her like she was an adult Mm. Yeah, which was which is so different to how we were parented. I'm assuming a lot on your behalf, but I was always like, children should be sort of, you know, seen but not heard. You know, like just mm. don't tell me what you think. Just do as mm. I say. Mm. And and mm. now I'm trying a totally different way to parent my my daughter. Let's see how it goes. Let's see how the mm. science experiment goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out soon. Well, I I actually grew up like complete opposite style. Like my parents were like just like complete freedom you know as a kid very I liberal 
very liberal, super liberal. Like I can wow. be on my computer to like two o'clock in the morning as a kid. No, and and, and they wouldn't say yeah, yeah, yeah. They did not say anything. In fact, How they got siblings? me. A, I have one younger brother. He's five years younger than me, and um, this was the in the nineteen nineties. So in those days, having a computer was very rare. Now everyone has a computer, right? But in nineteen nineties, it's very rare. This was the early days of the internet, and my dad yeah. got me a computer, and he would let me play on the computer until whatever time I want. And I think wow. that that kind of <laughs> cultivated uh, this idea in me. I believe that you know I can do something if I want to because I'm so used mm. to having that creative freedom. You know, no one would say, yeah. no, stop doing this. You go study this, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, so that was quite good. I, I want to jump back to like Wanderlust a bit. So I think we're going to kind of approach the, the second half of our conversation. We're way past that a bit. Uh, so you, you've obviously shared with us how you first started Wanderlust like many, many years ago before, you know, Instagram even existed. Uh, but today, your Instagram account has over 200,000 followers. So it's fair to say you've seen the evolution of social media and how yeah. businesses grow on social media. Like, what's your, um, what's your impression of how these strategies have changed right over time? So today and what it was is uh, so completely different, for sure. Um, the last 10 years, I guess, like you kind of, uh, I guess, uh, pointed out, Instagram didn't exist when I started the brand and, and what it is now. Um, I would say that the biggest change um, definitely would be the digital influencer ecosystem. Um, everything is probably, I would call it uh, in the, in, I guess the fashion advertising industry, we call it like pay to play. Um, everything is pay to play at the moment um, pretty much. And um there are agencies that exist, especially in, in um, the US, UK, Australia, solely to represent influencers um, and do ad placements, review placements. Um, it's a lot less organic compared to before. Um, I would say those are the key changes. I would say the other key changes like social media strategy and online digital strategy used to be, um, I guess, like the second fiddle. Whereas like these days, it really does take center stage. If you're about to launch a brand um, and you don't have a social strategy, you don't have a digital strategy, like anyone would laugh at your plan <laughs> and say, what mm. do you mean? Right. Mm. Um, so I would say that um, social strategy, KOL strategy, influencer strategy, digital strategy, it's all been bumped up many, many notches to take the crown right at top of like brand and fashion strategy. Um, I would still say though that regardless of all of this like being authentic has been something that i have seen um as a useful and necessary part of all those layers of strategy so meaning being genuine speaking to your customer via social media via captions in a very candid way very transparent way um without so much formalities uh, would definitely pay off. I would say being authentic would pay off. So um, I've seen a shift away from um, customers, especially fem female customers, that's our target market, mm -hmm. uh, a shift away from them just lapping up um, influencer reviews uh, and using them more as billboards. So if you think about it, Traditional media is television, radio, and billboards, right? Like, literally, mm. like, you know, uh, 
the billboard between like Kia and PJ, Federal Highway, mm. right? Mm. Um, and what's happened now is on Instagram and Facebook, like influencers have become the new billboards. Um, so everything they say in the past used to be more for um, like in-depth reviews versus now it's more for brand discovery, just to create brand awareness. So what I've done with my team in terms of a shift of strategies, we've shifted away from digital influences, pure in digital influencer strategy back to traditional UGC and CRM. So we initiated this campaign called hashtag. So our, our female audience, we call them um, hashtag WCoGirlGang. This was a term that we coined like five, six years ago. And um, if you follow the hashtag, it's got over like 7,000 mentions, like 7,000 customers have like used it and hashtagged it like organically. Um, and we um, have gone back to basics and gone back to customers in, in our database where we've seen that they've been repeat purchases over X amount of time. So we'll reach out to them and say, hi, so-and-so, thank you so much for supporting us, being part of our journey. We notice, we hope you're enjoying this item that you purchased from us. Um, and you know, we are launching this campaign where we want to place a spotlight on people who have supported us over the years. And so we are just reaching out to you. We hope you don't mind um, to say thank you and to say we would like to gift you something in return and then if you could take a photo of that and share a review of that after you've won it for 30 days we would like your permission so we can share this on our website and also on our social platform so then we started this w cool girl gang speaks strategy and the 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 key thing here that's the key takeaway is i only want the review after 30 days hmm. because if i give you something free then you have to say nice things right hmm. <laughs> And then, and, and the word credibility in this day and age and authenticity is currency because in a couple of flicks, in a milliseconds, you know, things can happen. Everything is so disingenuous and everything is temporary. Mm. Um, and so we have shifted our approach a bit more away and going back to supporting the people who have supported us and kind of saying like, you know, back in old school TVC days in the 90s where you would watch TVC and they'd be selling some mop that can do eight things or this mm -hmm. special cloth that you can use to wipe everything in the whole house, you know? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. some, someone will come on and be like, I've used this in my house for the last X amount of days and da 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 And But that, in the 90s, that was like the most advanced way of, most credible way of advertising, right? Um, and, and yeah, so that's an initiative that we've taken, um, not because of, uh, we're, we're still working with influencers. We still love our digital creators very, very much so because they're such a diverse bunch that are from all around the world. And I mean, goodness, they are very, very fashionable. Like sometimes mm -hmm. they wear it in ways that I will never imagine. Um, but also I think for me, there's just this nice, rawness of going back to your customers and saying hey would you mind you've been advocating us silently we would like to say thank you and would you mind if you advocate us publicly in a way right mm. um and then you kind of also build that authentic relationship with that customer too because they're like oh wow thank you you noticed me i have been supporting you and there's something magical about being noticed right mm. in an authentic yeah i love that like uh, um uh, and, and do these ideas come from you or like uh, from your team? Yeah. Like that's, that's brilliant. Thank you. I, 
um, well, ideas don't always work. Um, but I always say to my team that it has to come from an authentic place because mm. even if you try A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and they all, some work better than others, but then your ultimate thread through the middle is the purpose of your brand. Mm. And brands are different to a service, isn't it? Because let's say mm. if you're a platform, if you're a service, if you're a grab, if you're a warp, it's like, it's totally different. But when someone connects with a brand, mind you, there's also a lot of brands out there. But then mm. when they finally click and connect, then you kind of have them, you know, mm. like Uji or like my mm. husband wears, uh, like he, he's got certain things he wears that he wears all the time. Same goes for me. Mm-hmm. And you kind of become that customer for life sometimes until they give you a reason to stop shopping with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell my team that. Don't give them a reason to stop shopping with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. And, 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 and um, I've actually been uh, a personal customer of Wanderlust as well. I Thank you. Yeah, my well, wife. I might and... with some UGC drill soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I uh, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I really love your products. I, this, is my, this is my opinion as a guy, right? Who doesn't yeah, really yeah. understand fashion, right? And I look at what you guys are doing. And, I, and my impression of it is that, so, so you have a brand that, you know, you, you've got very modern taste. That's my opinion. It's very modern taste. It looks great, right? And, um, but it's still very accessible, right? To like most consumers. It's not a price to the point where like, oh, wow, that's, you know, I, I can't Out afford there. that. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I look at it or like... you have to think about it too much, you yeah, know? Yeah, you know, I look at it. yeah. That's right. Yeah, I look at it. I like it. You know, I can afford it. And, um, and, and, therefore, and therefore, that's why, you know, uh, my wife and I, like, we've been customers, right? So, um, Thank you. one of the things that, you know, I probably want to ask you is that how do you make the product, you know, uh, that way? What, what, makes, what makes this... How do you make it special? Do you have a certain process? You know, like, well, well, how, like, you know, I, I don't understand like the whole design process of like the jewelry space, but maybe you could like run us through that. Um, I actually have another book here to share. I'm like full of books. <laughs> oh my God. Like, <laughs> it's like so, the, your entire bookshelf is uh, uh, how you run the business probably. <laughs> in a way, but I also pulled just five or six out just for our chat because I thought, right. you know, help someone else out there who's tuning in but uh this series called do there's this do Do design why beauty is key to everything and there's another one that when i was in a flurry to grab the books earlier i didn't manage to find it but it says do purpose why Mm. purpose is key to everything um Mm. and when it comes to design uh it's very hard for me to quantify i would say that we of course do all the hard stuff such as we're subscribed to WDSN, you know, they're the global trend platform uh, uh, for everyone, including LVMH. They predict trends uh, three to five years in advance um, and across every single industry. So WGSN is quite important. Um, also, I, I'm always following, uh, I would say, retail news. So I subscribe to Business of Fashion, BOF. Um, I also, um, women, women's wear daily, WWD is important. Uh, glossy G L O S S Y. Uh, it's another retail newsletter. That's really important. Most of them are actually based in the U S and Europe. So that's a big part of how that's, that's a big, 
there's that's sort of the key to how I stay in touch with what's happening in other places, although being based here. Um, I think it's super important actually to keep your finger finger on the pulse. It depends on your business, right? Because if you are, um, I guess, Madam Quants and you are a chain of restaurants here, right? Malaysian mm. food, then, then you got to stay attuned to here. But for, for me, like my customers everywhere and we're online, then I have to keep in touch with everything else online. So I would say when it comes to design, uh, number one, know what trends will be coming in. Um, know that you're not going to be able to do that alone. So find credible sources that you can rely on, you know. Number two, uh, keep up with the hard news of what's going on around the world in your industry. If global is kind of your landscape. Um, and number three, go with your gut. <laughs> so from number one and number two, you're going to build up an understanding of what trends are going to work. Uh, and oh, wait, number three is data. Number three is data. Then number four, go with your gut. So number one, design, uh, design uh, journals. Uh, and design forecast websites, important to subscribe to that. Number two, keep up with uh, the news of retail around the world. Number three, data, your own data. Like um, we track everything, much like I'm sure you do with your team. Um, mm. Who's buying what? What's our AOV? What's the bounce rate? What's the conversion rate? What's traffic rate? How much percentage did traffic rise or drop across our top 15 countries every day, every week, every month? What's our month-on-month -month performance against last year? What's week-on-week? -week? You know, like everything is tracked like to the T. And we even have a merchandising grading product system whereby we grade our products like report card. Yeah, there's like triple A, A, B, C, Tiers. So at any point, every single skew you see live on site has a report card and how they're performing against their peers. Um, there's also a markdown life cycle whereby when you launch, obviously, your full price, do you go onto a part-time pop-up promo? Are you on permanent markdown PMD? Are you on, a, like, so all of these and how are you performing within those individual baskets that all of this data that I've gone, they all get summarized and each of us within the team who has certain roles that contribute to what a future collection looks like, we remember these things. And then mm. when the time comes and we look at a trend board or we see something click, like something like COVID happens, da, 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 we have this knowledge in the back of our head ready to pull out and say, this is what we're going to do next. So I would say like gut feeling aside, one of the key things is actually to be very competent in your industry. So I don't want people to feel like design is all about fluff, you know, it's all mm. how you feel, you know. Um, yes, but be very competent in your heart knowledge, you know, be really competent, like know your stuff, you know, really, really get, know your stuff. Yeah. Know who's shopping, why they're shopping, when do they shop, how much are they shopping, what time are they shopping, when did they drop out, why did they drop out, uh, search keywords, you know, all of this stuff. Then using all of that, using one, two, and three, which is trend forecasting globally, retail news globally, and then data that your customers are telling you and your site and your social platforms. And this is across all platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, like the blog that we have, every platform is tracked, you know, mm. EDMs, mm. like EDMs mm. are sent six times a, a month and sometimes mm. they're segmented to only certain IPs around the world, you know, mm. um, like Australia has Australia Day, then we'll do an Australian specific thing. How did that work? You know, um, then all of that plus gut instinct uh, of, of what the next collection will look like. There's actually no shortcut. <laughs> um, 
I know like people always think that fashion, it's easy. It's like, oh, it's just your intuition. It is that plus so many other things. So many but in things, terms right? of like, yeah. in terms of the fun fluff stuff, my personal approach is I, I start a collection with an energy, like how I want a customer to feel. So, um, for example, we launched a collection called Out of This World. And we basically pull all these shapes and motifs from outer space, um, not in like a sci-fi way, but more in like a abstract way. And we put all of that into the coins and, and the different shapes and we made charm necklaces and different things like that. We had another collection called Daylight. Um, this was right before I gave birth to my second son, Oscar, and I think I was like desperately like seeking light, you know, stressful, <laughs> pregnant, and doing all Did you name, do you name them after like your moments in life? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Right. Or sometimes I name them after an aspiration. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, after an aspiration uh, of like what I hope that next chapter of the brand would be like, you know. Uh, mm. But daylight, we had all these necklaces that had mantras on them. Then one necklace said, trust the flow. Another necklace said, uh, um, seek for light. And another one said, like, see the world through your eyes. So see the world through your eyes is kind of like, because there's so much constantly telling us, like, think like this, do like this. But like we discussed earlier, we turn down the noise, we often have the answer, right? So really the design process, I hope this is befitting your question, but the design process for me is a sum of all of these things. Having, mm. it's kind of like management. <laughs> Observing the data and the facts that the world is serving us and our customers are serving us with a cohort and then designing with the warm hand, like, okay, and then how do we massage it into this, this thing where it's like, okay, what would be the next aspiration? Because if let's say people are only buying a certain type of ring, don't tell me next mm. collection you're only going to do this ring, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> so that's mm. the thing about fashion. It's not even like a system, you know, where you can go, let's copy and paste. It doesn't work mm. like that. Yeah. Mm. So, mm. so that's the thing about design, which is probably the most challenging thing. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to, because sometimes you can launch something that doesn't sell and then you can feel very deflated, right? Oh my God, did I make that? That's mm. no one <laughs> buying it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right? Like, oh, that yeah. was a great idea. We sold two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now we have 2,000. Cool. What are we going to do? <laughs> um, and you're constantly experimenting, right? It sounds like. And, 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 and therefore, you're, you're so used to like, things not working out exactly what you thought it would be. In, oh, in a way, that's good training. You know? Nothing yeah. works out. Yeah. Even our product life cycle, we used to drop collections, like one collection every three months. And then we realized that we hit like a 25% sell-through across every collection, like in terms of 25% best-selling sell-through. So every time we drop mm. some, 25% of it would like hit the roof and go into pre-order. And then the remaining 75% will live out its product life cycle, kind of mm. like a stalwart, you know, mm. like averagely. Mm. So then what we did was we disintegrated this collection drop off like 20 to 30 SKUs per drop for like two to three months. And we kind of dropped them into micro capsules. So if you notice, basically every day since 1st January 2020, every week since 1st January 2020, we dropped three new styles on a Thursday. 
But our design and production process in the back end is still in a, in a block cycle of a 10-week period at a go. So we close out 20 designs at a go. We, we plop them into micro capsules. We make sure they make sense. We make sure even things like when we drop three SKUs a week or six SKUs a week, there's a price uh, bell curve. So something it starts at 25, something's 29, something's 30, something's 35, something's 39. Then if there's a $59, there's only one piece. There's a price bell curve. There's all this science behind fashion that no one ever told me when I was 25. <laughs> and and I, I guess you need both, right? You need like, you need a system of process, but um, a loose system of process, let's just put it that way, combined yeah. with a bit of intuition and, Good taste la, at the end of the day, right? Because like, one of the things I tell people la, is that um, from my experience, and I've heard this somewhere else before as well, it's like it's, um, you can train a lot of things. You, know? you can train people how to think. You can train people about even attitudes. To some extent, you can train people. But it's very difficult to train taste. So <laughs> that's my you can opinion. Hone, you can hone taste. You can hone taste? You can. Okay. To a degree. Hmm. To a degree, but there's a reason why some of us are doctors, some of us are architects, some of us are accountants, some of us are lawyers. I guess some things are innate, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What's, um, what, you, what are you looking forward to for Wonders? I know it's a strange time right now and it's probably very difficult to answer this question, but uh. <laughs> what do you look forward to for the rest of the year? Honestly... If you're catching me as a friend to a friend, I'll say I look forward to things getting easier. Because <laughs> mm. the other day I conducted my town hall and I did a theme. And I said, everybody wear a hat. And I borrowed my daughter's fireman hat, the red one. And it didn't really fit my head. It covered till here. And then, and then everyone had to explain why they chose that hat. And I said, mine is this because I've been putting out fires every day. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would say... <laughs> I'm not even joking when I say I just, I'm looking forward to a time where things get easier. Like people talk about things returning to normal. I don't think it's realistic because we're not going to go back to normal. Like what is normal anyway? And when we say normal, what was good about normal before? Because I think mm. the whole point of the world coming out of this is to try to find new ways to, to do some of the things that we've fallen into poor, bad habits of. And there's so many like... You know, I guess a lot of people's eyes have been open, wide open over the disparity of like the economy or like mm. the unjustness of certain things around the world, right? Like just, I feel like there's been covers covering a lot of mm. these things and now they're just like out in the open, yeah. right? And yeah. I hope world leaders and our global systems, you know, I mean, they take these things seriously and they don't just go back to business as usual. I would say it would be sad for me anyways. I know it's idealistic, but it I would be sad if we just went back to as per normal mm. after going mm. through something like this together as the world, right? Mm. So for me, like, what am I most hope, like looking forward to? I'm actually really looking forward to fashion as an industry being a bit more conscious and I know this isn't just a wanderlust question because like I shared much earlier at the beginning of the podcast, like we've been going conscious in terms of our production and different mm. things over the last three years. And we have a path to like, um, like 70% um, sustainability by X amount of time and so on and so forth. Um, but I just hope fashion as an industry, like, like fast fashion especially, needs to really evaluate itself. Like 
the, the wages it pays its workers, you know, mm. the conditions they're working in. How much stuff do we really need for five bucks from Shopee? Seriously. How, <laughs> how much do you think the guy who made that for you so you can buy it for five ringgit, how much do you think he's paid? Yeah. It's, it's question, right? yeah. like, I think people need to wake up. Like, it's like, and I know it's not a popular opinion, but I've been in this industry for what, like 15 years now? Like in uni, I was already in fashion till today, mm. right? Mm-hmm. and like it just has to stop we have to stop producing things because we can we mm-hmm. need to produce things that people need we need to produce things that are intentional we need to produce things that bring people joy and i mean this in a non-idealistic way not like oh everything has to be perfect everything has to have meaning no not so much but there's a reason why marie kondo's show or series on netflix was so popular at one point i think the world is craving change you know, um, and for me, what I'm most looking forward to after this with Wonderlust is embracing all of this change. I don't want my life or my brand or my team strategy to go back to before. I want it to be better. I want us to not survive this period. I want mm-hmm. them to thrive. And I told them this mm-hmm. during our digital town hall like a few days ago. I was like, I don't intend for you guys to just survive. This mentality of surviving, it sucks. Mm-hmm. I want us to go above and beyond it, you know, and I know because we are digital, we are a bit more lucky. So I want to be very sensitive in, in, I guess, my opinion. We are mm. a bit more lucky in that sense. But I've seen, um, I'll share with you, like uh, one of um, the jewelry brands in the US called Kendra Scott, based out of Dallas in America. She has a hundred offline stores and a distribution center to service online. And her distribution center got shut down. Because social distancing um, is, is, is real in the U.S. Like a lot of distribution centers who aren't able to practice safe social distancing has had to shut down, even if they're e-commerce, right? Um, so what she's done is she's activated a hundred of her retail stores into mini DCs. So if she gets orders in online, she then segments them out by state and postcode and she activates her offline retail members into shipping postcode specific orders. So she gets to help them to keep jobs, obviously, whilst still bringing in the revenue they need. And this goes back to your thing about how do you exercise compassionate leadership, right? Mm, so yeah. if you insist on compassion as a leader, you find a way to make things work. And that doesn't mean doing things business as per usual. I hate it when, when people say, oh, I, I hope it goes back to the usual. Like, I really am quite anti that. I'm like, no, you find a different way to do it. That's your job as a leader to find a new way. So shame on people like leaders around the world who want things to go back to their work. That's for your convenience. Because you're resistant to change, but people want change, like especially those in poverty who need help. They're dying for it. They're literally dying for a change. Mm. Yeah. So like um, another uh, friend of mine runs a wonderful uh, brand called Inai. Inai, um, and she does beautiful custom baju for like um, celebrities and even like the promissory of slang or west her stuff and she's always like her show is a highlight every care fashion week and she has had plans for example to launch a website and a ready-to-wear range and during this period of over the last five weeks a plan to launch a website which originally had a six-month pipeline now got launched within three weeks wow and i'm seeing this change across the fashion industry and these are i'm only mm-hmm. going to share two examples you know because um mm-hmm. well obviously we don't have all day but um but these are just the two examples that i think is really hopeful and i for one 
definitely don't hope for things to go back to normal. I want them to be better. Yeah, it's, in fact, the, I find it quite, uh, I'm not sure if the, I'm using the right word surprising, but I literally gave a very similar speech to my team recently about yeah. thriving, you know, because yeah. like, a lot of companies are thinking about how we're going to survive this. And yeah. I also said the same thing, like, oh, actually among all the job or recruitment platforms, we are kind of uniquely positioned to probably come out of this a little bit ahead you yeah. know, because of like the, you know, the, the, the talent that we have, it's very digital and our platforms are on the internet and all that. And yeah. we should be thinking about how we should, you know, um, I don't use the word take advantage, but something like that, right? We should look at this situation right. and figure the out. opportunity. That's right. While, while everyone's playing defense, we should go on offense, right? Yeah. We should figure out, okay, everyone's so busy, like thinking just about cost. Obviously, we think about cost too, but not just that. How do we change so that when this whole thing ends and we kind of live in like a new world, like we are perfect for this new world, you know? Um, so, so, yeah, so that's what we're figuring out. Um, uh, so I'm conscious of time, even for you. I'm sure you're really busy. Uh, yeah. I want to, so thank you for sharing so much. I wonder, I want to, actually, we typically end with uh, several quick fire questions. Yeah. Some people have complained that my quick fire questions are slow fire questions because they're so complicated. Okay. <laughs> it's so hard to answer. We'll try. I'll try to okay? give one word. Yep. Yeah, we'll try. Okay, so um, first question. What scene from a movie or TV show was super memorable to you and left you uh, some sort of life lesson? Some sort of what, sorry? A life lesson, a lesson, right? Uh, you know, what's um, seen from a movie or TV? Most recently for me, it's Money Heist. <laughs> Money Heist. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen that one. Uh, okay, that's good. Um, uh, any, just quickly, any particular reason why any part of that show was like really memorable? Without giving too much away, they are planning to rob an institution that has never, that is basically impenetrable, right? Mm. And so basically the whole thing goes to show that teamwork is everything. If you plan to fail, if, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Cool. Uh, next question. Is there a nonfiction book that you've read? And I can see you have a lot of books. Is there a <laughs> nonfiction book that you've read that you believe everyone should read? Actually, I haven't shared this book yet, but it's a... Uh, it's actually uh, the things you can only see when you slow down. It's a great time for people to be reading this. Um, again, it it's, has an emphasis on thoughtful living and mindfulness, um, but right. the things you can only see when you slow down. So yeah, that's nice. uh, it's, Who's it's, the actually, author? it's very short um, verses and the, the beginning of every chapter, it would be like, there's a couple of chapters. Every chapter has a topic and it's so mm. easy to read. It's actually by a Korean monk who went, who studied a PhD in uh, change. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So like Brene Brown studies shame, for example. <laughs> um, so I always say to my husband, if everything goes to crap, I want to be a, uh, what do you call it? Like a workplace psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Name, yeah, he's a, a Korean monk. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. very, I very famous. I probably pronounced it wrongly. <laughs> no, Heimin Sunim. You said it right. He's Korean, but he lives okay. in the US. Okay. Um, next question. 
what's the best piece of career advice you've ever received from a mentor or someone you respect? Mm, trust yourself. Okay. What object have you purchased in the last 12 months that cost less than a thousand ringgit, but you believe has had tremendous positive impact to you? This book. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, for those who are listening through the podcast, it's the same book that uh, Jen just mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, if you could make a video go viral and the video carried a message that's important to you, what message would that be? Global warming is real. What does the word success mean to you? Success is inner peace. Nice. Okay. Uh, this, is the, this is the last question. Uh, what, what's a skill that you have that other people might find surprising, but it's been very useful to you in your career? In my career? Hmm. Or maybe in life in general. I think I'm a really good salesperson. <laughs> yeah, oh, so oh, when, my, no. when, my, when my team and I did a warehouse sale recently, I wasn't a, uh, expecting to be on the floor, but I was there every day from a.m. to p.m. when we were there at 8 a.m. until like we were there till midnight every day for three days in a row and we had record sales. And if you look on social media, like the line to pay and to come into shop was insane and I, I cannot... I, I, I was so overwhelmed by the support because like I said, we're actually a very much online brand. So we don't do much offline. And when we did this pop out and we had that overwhelming response. And then when we did the warehouse sale, when people turned out and lined up before we opened, I was like, Oh my goodness, you know? Uh, and I think you, I'm sure you can relate. We're oftentimes as founders, like what we do and what people think we do are totally different. And, um, and so I spent so much of my time on calls. I spent a lot of my time on Excel sheets. I spent a lot of my time on PowerPoint. Um, and it was just so nice for me to do what I used to do back in uni, which is just be on the shop floor, help a customer find something, grab stocks from the drawer, give it to them, you know. And I, it reminded me again that I just love sales not because I'm like, I want to sell you something, but because in, I think sales is like, if you come in and you're like, you're, you're buying something for your wife for Valentine's day and tomorrow is Valentine's day. And if I am able to help you, you will be so happy, you know, and being <laughs> in the jewelry industry, like jewelry. Okay. It's, there are three reasons why people purchase jewelry. One is definitely as a gift. Uh, definitely for someone's mom, wife, daughter, sister, neighbor, uh, co-worker. It's always as a gift because there's no size required, right? So people mm -hmm. buy jewelry as gifts all the time. The second thing is to feel good. You know, if, if you're a woman and you're listening in, you'll know that if you buy jeans or shirts, especially after MCO, after all the banana bread will be baking and cookies, like the size is going to change, okay? But your jewelry <laughs> size doesn't change. Your necklace size doesn't change. That's so you can go true, in yeah. and pick it up and feel good without the changing room mirror taunting you. You know, women have so many issues with body and I know I have after two kids, like, like oh, how come this dress is, you know, there's just a thousand reasons. But with jewelry, you put it on, your neck's the same. <laughs> so I think I think that's the other thing too when you buy it for yourself it's actually a very enjoyable experience you don't need to go through all this like 
sometimes like difficulties of sizing, you know. Um, and I would say like for these reasons, like I really enjoy sales because there's just this feeling like I've helped someone and they feel so good after that, you know. Nice. I can, um, I have to say that uh, I'm not surprised. Like, yeah, you're, you're, a great, you're a great storyteller. I can see you being very good at sales and you're very good at connecting with people. <laughs> so, I hope so. Ultimately, yeah, so yeah, yeah. they walk to the tilt. <laughs> yeah. uh, and thank you so much again for like, you know, joining us for this podcast. I, I yeah. really enjoyed this conversation with you. It kind of went on a bit longer than I expected. You could actually could go on and on. Right. I, I can tell there's so much that I probably would have loved to ask you if we had more time. Uh, then hopefully maybe perhaps sometime in the future, you know, uh, we can have this conversation again, like an update maybe a year yeah. from now to see what, uh, what the company looks like after yes. all this ends. Yeah, that was really enjoyable. I think that was especially refreshing also just, just as a step sideways outside of everything we're facing as business owners at the moment. So thank you so much for thinking of me and thinking of the brand um, and especially for uh, buying jewelry for your, brand, for, for your wife from our brand. <laughs> so the <laughs> next time happy. I'll have to be the one who serves you so I can get a bigger AOV <laughs> from you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, look, I'll look out for you right like uh, now now that, that we've kind of met in person you know I'll, I'll know when I see you <laughs> yeah, yeah well thank you so much and um, I wish you guys uh, you and your team all the best during this time as well um, and yeah this was fun yeah, you, you too bye. thank you bye thank you for listening to the Hello Mentor podcast if you enjoyed this episode do hit that subscribe button whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you're trying to have a great career or if you want to succeed in business, um, you will benefit from really, really getting to learn from some of the most inspiring people in Malaysia. And hopefully, you can replicate some of that success yourself. Uh, we have many, many more amazing people joining us soon and we expect to release an episode once every two weeks. So again, do hit that subscribe button to our podcast and you will be notified when the next episode is up. Also, this podcast is supported by WAP, the leading professional youth jobs platform in Malaysia. So if you're looking to hire great talent or if you're looking for a new job, do also check us out at wopjobs.com. That's W-O-B-B jobs.com. Thank you again and I look forward to to share the next episode with you soon.